What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Anthro Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Anthro Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes a guest, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. We're back here on Anthro Alert. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and always streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. So you can check us out there for that streaming service. Uh, Like I said, you're listening to the 3 to 4 o'clock hour of Anthro Alert. Um, so either thank you for staying tuned or thank you for joining us, depending on if you listened to the last hour. Uh, my name is Spencer, and I am one of your co-hosts here. And I have my colleague and friend sitting next to me. Hello, everybody. My name is Renee, and I am happy to be here on uh, Anthro Alert. Hey. All right. So just like last hour, let me tell you a little bit about what Anthro Alert is and what we do here. Uh, so this show really... Is about anthropology and why it matters. Uh, each week we discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time we feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology uh, to discuss the research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. We believe that this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists and students of anthropology to better connect with the USF community and to raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. Uh, Just like every week, we like to preface our shows with the disclaimer that the statements we make here and the opinions that we express on Anthro Alert are our opinions, ours alone, and may not necessarily be representative of anthropology as a discipline, uh, the USF Anthropology Department, USF, or student government, and anyone else that that I forgot to mention there. Yeah, I'm sure there's at least um, – I'm sure there's at least a a couple of people that might – that might or might not have, disagree with yeah. our opinions. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's just that's just life, you know. You know, some people are going to be opinionated about the opinions of other people. That's true, right? So today we have a special guest here on the second hour of Anthro Alert. Um, actually, not from the department uh, at USF. So we have another phone interview this week. Uh, so we're excited that we're getting some um, some of our other anthropology colleagues and uh, and branching out from USF to to get some some more interesting research, some more interesting um, anthropologists doing cool stuff. And so we're excited to talk to Miguel Garcia today. Yeah, so we're trying to, we're trying to get diversity of application. Exactly. And uh, Miguel is a Chicano applied anthropologist, and in May 2018, which is next month, will officially graduate with an MA in applied anthropology from San Jose State University. His research interests include activist research, immigration, citizenship, race and power, the politics of sports, and spatial politics. And Miguel plans to pursue a PhD in anthropology, but recently accepted a position with the state of California's Bureau for Private Postsecondary Education. So, uh, Miguel, welcome to the show. Can you hear us okay? Yes, I can hear you. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. So we're just going to uh, dive right in. Can you just tell us about your, your master's research, Miguel? Okay, so my master's research, um, I looked at the impact of uh, the city of San Jose's street peddler policy 
So how they how they control a street vendor street vendors in uh, the city. Um, so with that, I got interested in my research through actually the Super Bowl, the NFL's uh, you know big game sports. I'm a sports fan, so like, and I noticed there was this policy that all uh, Super Bowl host cities, which San Jose was a Super Bowl his, uh, host city in February 2016. Um, and one of the requirements was by the NFL for any host city of the Super Bowl is to enforce a temporary uh, street peddler ordinance, which is commonly referred to the clean zone ordinance. Um, and this ordinance pretty much gives the NFL uh, control of a certain area of the city for the whole week. So usually it's the downtown area uh, during their Super Bowl week where they have different activities throughout the week with fans and tourists. Um, and this clean zone ordinance pretty much bans anyone that the NFL does not approve for that week. So normally a street vendor could go in downtown and, you know, and sell whatever they're selling, ice cream, corn, you know, they sell in Spanish with the lotes. Mm-hmm. Or they might be selling ice cream, their paleteros, their paletas. So usually, normally, they could go in the downtown and sell these products. But the NFL has a strict rule of controlling pretty much all business activity in this little clean zone area. So for that week, street vendors were not allowed to go out and try to make some money while they were having service coming for the game. So do you know why the NFL enforces, um, you know, what can and cannot be sold in, you know, a particular downtown area during the Super Bowl? It's pretty much whatever they they decide. So, for example, mm-hmm. like commonly like food, like so they'll have their own vendors selling their own, you know, food at like they'll set up little booths. And it's usually like their sponsors. So, for example, I actually went, the first night of the week was Monday during Super Bowl week, and usually that first day of Super Bowl week, they have like a media day event, which all the both teams of the Super Bowl go and do interviews and on TV. And then that first that that year in San Jose, they hosted that their arena, the main sports arena they have there, the SAP Center. They hosted that event, and that was the first year where it was actually televised. Well, it's always been televised, but it was like a primetime television event instead of usually in the morning. So what I noticed there was there's different sponsors selling things. So there was like Pepsi, you know, selling Pepsi or giving out free stuff. So it could range from different things. When I was doing research, I even read they even had, like when they hosted the Super Bowl in um, New Orleans or New York City in years past, they also like had say in which uh, which taxis were allowed to come in and out and, uh, you know, pick up people. So they pretty much control anything, pretty much anything that helps them make money. Hmm. So so I kind of hear that, and I think, well, like, here I am. Like, I'm going to travel to go to a Super Bowl thing, and I'm going to get, like, an authentic uh, New Orleans, Louisiana experience or, or a New York City experience or a San Jose Santa Clara experience. And, um, yeah, apparently it's not, right? It's just kind of curated by what the NFL wants to present. Yeah, so it's pretty much, they just want to control the tourist economy for that week, pretty much. Um, it's, it's usually with the street vendors, but also I even read the past Super Bowls, well, even the San Francisco, 
that particular Super Bowl, it wasn't just San Jose, it wasn't the host of the actual game. That was Santa Clara, which is the city next to it. So it was more like a regional hosting thing. So San Francisco was also one of the, the hosts. And in San Francisco, they actually cleared the homeless encampments for that week and put them somewhere else because they were going to use a certain area for their little Super Bowl week. So it even extends into that, like homeless is where people aren't even allowed, at least in San Francisco. In San Jose, I didn't, during that week, I didn't see the homeless being bothered. But in San Francisco, they, they actually made them leave and go somewhere else. So kind of like also like a sterilization of the area as well. Yeah, which kind of is what intrigued me because all, most of the street vendors are uh, Latino, mostly Mexican and undocumented. So that was interesting. And actually while I was doing my uh, observations that week of Super Bowl week, February 1st through February 9th, 2016, um, I did notice there were some Girl Scouts selling outside that media event that I went to. And there were uh, police officers all around, and they didn't tell them anything. Like, they didn't enforce it. So I found that kind of curious and kind of like a, you know, maybe a class and race issue as well. Right. Yeah, girl, the Girl Scouts were not, they were not Latino. They were, they were a, it was a white woman and her daughter. But they weren't aware also of the clean zone. Because I asked Hoxter, she wasn't aware of the, the rule either. So that rule is supposed to also ban any, any, vendor activity, including like Girl Scouts, but yeah. the police weren't enforcing it. And then before that, before that Super Bowl week, months before, I attended a council meeting where like pretty much the city, they, they stated like, oh, we're targeting the Latino community. We're going to pretty much, uh, you know, go to the churches on Sunday and stuff and let them know, hey, there's this ordinance. You're not allowed to street vent for the week. So that was kind of curious. Like they actually, Tar- they may know that most of the vendors are Latino, so that that target of race and class kind of like sh- uh, showed itself while I was doing that research. Huh. Now, now was um, like was this the original focus of of yes, your yes. intention for like the master's your master's thesis project, or you kind of pivoted into it based on kind of um, you, just your observations here? No, this, so this was my main focus, and then it kind of grew from there. Um, so from there, I started doing my field. It was only supposed to be about looking at the ordinance and the impact on the street vendors just for that week and then maybe the impact afterwards. But then it kind of, then the, the whole uh, Trump election was about to happen, like the primaries and all that. And then I kind of noted when I was talking to street vendors, they were telling me about their issues, not just the street vendors, but as undocumented immigrants and their fear for Trump. So then my project actually grew, and then I kind of, instead of just looking at the clean zone ordinance, I expanded it to also look at how the street peddler policies uh, work in conjunction with uh, immigration policies. And so my project grew into that as well. So can you tell us a little bit about how these policies are kind of maybe an extension of, of national immigration policies, like you said? Okay, so for example, uh, street vent, so not even just the Super Bowl clean zone ordinance, but San Jose also has a, a special event ordinance, which was essentially they just used that provision they already had and applied it for that week of Super Bowl. But they also have like yearly events, like Christmas in the Park, which is like this whole uh, month of, it's an event from like November to like January, the end of 
for like the beginning of January, like after New Year, New Year's, and it ends. But for that Super Bowl week, they extended it into February since they were going to host the Super Bowl as well. And um, there, what this special event provision did was the same thing as the Queen Zone Ordinance. So during this Christmas in the park event, they have other, uh, they have approved food truck vendors, like really big food truck vendors. So bigger companies with more money. And they had to pay like a, a fee to the organizers to uh, participate in this event. And this Christmas in the park and all these major events are usually located in the same location in downtown San Jose, which is Cesar Chavez Plaza. It's this big old plaza, big old park in downtown where they have concerts and different events. So the street vendors are where during those events, street vendors are not allowed to sell their products in the event boundary. So that was so that was kind of a connection that grew larger from that. And then from that point on, I saw, like, police, you know, kind of controlling where street vendors work. And as far as with the federal immigration, the thing is, they, if they don't have a street vendor permit, they could get fined, like, cited. And so I kind of... That was kind of something the vendors always talked about when I would do uh, my interviews with them. Is oh, if I don't, I don't get my. They don't get their permits first of all because the price is too expensive for them. But then they could get cited, and their fear was, oh, if I get cited and I get in trouble, does that mean they're going to inform uh, uh, ICE and the uh, Immigration uh, Customs Enforcement? So that kind of became a big issue when I was interviewing them, and then. What happened later on during my project was there's actually this case study that wasn't in San Jose but in Southern California that I cross-compared with my research that happened uh, actually last, I think, July or August. And there was this lady back in Southern California, a street vendor, kind of close to where I'm from. I grew up in Southern California. It was, I believe, in Ranch Cucamonga. And she's a street vendor, but she did not have a street vendor license. So she was selling without her license, and I guess she got cited so many times by the police there that it triggered some misdemeanor in that city's uh, street peddler policy. So then she had to be detained and um, put into the county jail. And the next day she was, uh, the next day she was released from the county jail and ICE was waiting outside for her, and then she was arrested again and detained uh, with immigration. So that kind of, that case study kind of, uh, Kind of showed what I was, what my project was kind of trying to articulate was that these street peddler policies don't seem too harmful, like besides economically, but they could also trigger, uh, if they get in trouble, maybe there's a provision in a certain city's law where they get a misdemeanor and then it alerts ICE and then that leads to deportation. Do you have any um, other examples from your interviews of how these, you know, clean zone and special event policies affected particularly the people that you were interviewing for for your uh, research? Yes. So one of the big issues is the price of the uh, street peddler permit. Um, and when I was interviewing the street vendors, they would tell me about the cost of it. Do you know what the and, cost is off the top of your head? Yeah, so so top of my head, when I did, it, 
it's at least it's over a thousand depending what category because the city has different categories wow is that like for like is that annually or like monthly that's um every two years okay that's still a lot so they paid, <laughs> yeah they paid a fee okay. i'm sorry okay yeah, so every two years they pay this fee. It's over a thousand, and it depends what category of street vendor you are. So there's different categories the city defines. So like if you're a mobile street seller that they define as like someone just walking down the sidewalk that sells uh, ice cream or corn, so their fee might be a little less. It's still very expensive. It's like a thousand. But let's say a street vendor that wants to sell uh side of tacos, and you have like a little taco truck or a little stand, that fee is going to be more expensive. So there's different levels of fees, and most of them don't didn't have the permits because of the price of the fees. So because of not having those permits, if they get cited, they could get uh, in more trouble with the law, and then that kind of puts a fear in their mind. Hey, I don't want to get in trouble, and and you know maybe I'm going to get deported because and this was during, and then while I'm doing the interviews. This during the, before Trump getting elected, but during his campaign, and it kind of sh- they were kept talking about those issues. And then for like another another issue with these permit prices was let's say they want to participate in one of those special events like Christmas in the Park, that fee is even more expensive. I was at a meeting between the street vendors, some immigrant, uh, some street vendor organizers that like trying to organize the vendors to get them. Uh, Cheaper fees. They had a meeting with a big, the bigger food truck companies that uh, that are the ones that organize these bigger events. And from what from what the one of the organizers told me of these events, the charge to street vend to vend at their event was ten thousand dollars. Holy moly! It's, it's like how so much? How much ice cream? Higher than the actual regular yeah. street permit fee. Jeez! Like how much That's ice cream? <laughs> How much, how much ice cream do you have to sell to clear ten thousand dollars? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that is yeah, that is a significant sum of money. That that kind of blows my mind a little bit. Um, I think we're gonna pause there for um, a short music break, and then when we come back, uh, we will can, can continue the the conversation about these clean zone and special event policies. So stay tuned. Hey everyone, hey Bulls, listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and always streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. So thanks for coming back and listening to us. Thanks for staying tuned. We are speaking with uh, Miguel Garcia um, from San Jose State University about his his master's research. And so we are going to just um, hop right into the conversation. Um, Miguel, are you still with us? Yes, yes, I am. Okay. Uh, and so uh, in the brief summary that you sent us before the show as we were planning, uh, you kind of you mentioned some terms that we'd like for you to break down for us, um, one of which was the Latino threat narrative and the other being um, barrioization. Can you, can you uh, kind of speak to those, those terms and then break them down a little bit for us? Okay, so um, the Latino threat narrative was something that really uh, I used throughout my research. I guess not really technically a theory, but more of a concept. It's uh, it's from Leo Chavez, anthropologist from UC Irvine, that coined the term. 
So Latino threat narrative is an understanding that Latinos are unlike previous immigrant groups in that they are unwilling or incapable of fully integrating into U.S. culture. So what Chavez is trying to say with the threat narrative is it's kind of like kind of a kind of a racist uh, narrative that America might that maybe the United States or people that are not Latino in the United States uh, might hold might stereotype perceptions they might hold about Latinos in particular particularly Mexicans. So that Latino threat narrative is something I tied into my project. Since, as I was saying earlier, with the street vendors, the city of San Jose, the way they wrote the, uh, they have their special event provision, street pillar policy, it's supposed to apply to anyone, regardless of race, class, ethnicity. You know, it's supposed to apply to anybody if you're breaking that rule, you know, that's the policy. But during the Clean Zone Ordinance, uh, the meetings before the Super Bowl, uh, when they were discussing the Clean Zone Ordinance, they specifically state at their count at their meeting, like, "Oh, we got to go target the Latino community. Like, we got to make them aware of this ordinance because because they know that most uh, most of the street vendors are are Latino, are Mexican. So that that Latino threat narrative kind of showed itself there because even though the rule supposed to apply to anyone, they specifically know who the, who they're targeting. And who they did not, they wanted to make aware that you're not going to be allowed to uh, street bend for the week during the Super Bowl. So it's kind of that. And then also how it eventually the pro, my project, I discussed the uh, conjunction with the immigration policies and with what's with the, the Trump presidency and those, those narratives, those stereotypes that they are, you know, they portray in the media about Latinos as well. Yeah, there there was a lot of of political rhetoric there that, that kind of that people latched onto, and yeah, it, it was it was uh, it was particularly um, racist. Yes, yes, it is. So, um, speaking to the the national sort of immigration policies earlier in the first segment, you had mentioned ICE. Um, and then there's another group that you had talked about the the Myra Watch. Can you can you discuss those two groups and you know who they are and um, for those who aren't familiar with immigration? Okay, so um, ICE. If you do not know, ICE is is the immigrant immigration and customs enforcement. So they are pretty much the immigration police. Um, and so with Trump becoming president and him trying to ramp up ICE activity and deportation, um, San Jose had this, the, some organizations in San Jose, most nonprofits, like uh, one of them was Sacred Heart Charities. The other, the other one was called uh, PAC, People Against uh, People in Community Together. I can't remember the exact name of the group right now. And a couple other nonprofits, um, uh, almost Mayfair, they just, with the whole fear of immigration and deportation that was going around the community, the undocumented community, they decided to create this Negro Watch, who are Rapid Response Network, as it's officially called, um, which all it is is kind of, I don't know if you guys know what Cop Watch is. Yeah. 
but it pretty much works in the same way. It's a community defense for immigrant families and their allies to report and respond to ICE raids. So what they did is they trained legal observers, which I'm, I'm one of the trained legal observers, and that's how I kind of I volunteered for it, and then I decided to include it as part of my project. I'm doing applied work. Um, so what they would do is train people how to legally observe when an ICE raid is happening. Because one of the issues with ICE raids is most of the time from what we learned from the trainings was from what immigration lawyers were informing all the legal observers is 99% of the time when ICE does a raid, they don't have a warrant. But people usually, you know, people that are getting deported or are affected by this, they have no clue. So that was one of the trainings was to make sure there's people there documenting when there's an ice raid. And what they did is they also used some technology. So they created a system where they call have a phone number you call. So if you see an ice van or something at someone's house and you happen to see it, they want you to call this number, this Negro watch number. And then from there, they send a text alert to all the volunteers. So not all the volunteers, because they have a good amount throughout the whole, uh, not just San Jose, but Silicon Valley and Santa Clara, the county. But it sends a text alert to people within five miles of this ice raid that's happening to get people to get to that location so they could start documenting uh, the ice raid. Because since they don't, most of the time they don't use, 99% of the time they don't use a warrant, but there's never documentation as evidence to prove that they're breaking some law or, or whatever. So ICE gets away with it. So that's kind of the, the main purpose of it is to document these ICE raids and then hopefully use that in immigration uh, court to help the person that might be detained or might be deported. So, so I didn't know that. So, um, so an ICE raid, ICE, uh, they re- they need to have a warrant to be able to do their. Raid. Yes, they're supposed to have a warrant. And that apparently, according to the information I researched and then from the lawyers that were at the legal observations you trained, they told us that 99.9% of the time they never have a warrant. So that's why they want to document this and then, I guess, present it in court to try to help them fight the deportation cases for people. So that's how the Negro Watch started, I guess, from the whole Trump deportation of fear. And so going, I'm kind of curious, going back to the street vendors, um, you said a lot of them are concerned, you know, because they can't afford, you know, the really steep price of of having a license, a vendor license. Um, And so they're concerned with getting uh, written up and then even um, maybe even getting deported if if the situation gets worse. Did you find that um, street vendors, maybe even outside of, clean zone ordinances or special event um, ordinances, are are they heavily policed? Like, are they sort of, I don't want to say harassed, but, like, are they kind of kept watch on, or and how much of a issue is it? So what I covered through my research um, was that there's some differences in the policing depending on the area, so it kind of ties into uh, another term I, I used, was barrioization in my project, 
which is from an anthropologist uh, named, what's his name, Raul Dia. I don't know what university is. He's from a university somewhere in Texas. But his barrioization theory from one of his books is that barrioization documents these processes that simultaneously work to control and deteriorate Mexicano communities in California and cyclical regimes of urban restructuring that dismantle established communities to make room for modern enhancements. So kind of like a justification type of thing. Um, and I noticed that the, the enforcement of the street peddler policies was different depending on the area. So the enforcement of the policy, they enforce the policy more in like downtown where like the other businesses are at, where tourists might be. The policing was much, the enforcement was, seems much stronger. Whereas even in the policies, it, it kind of just differentiates. Like, for example, that special event provision policy, like kind of like the clean zone that they already have in place for other events. Those events happen in downtown, but they don't have, they don't use that provision for other areas. For example, uh, most of the, a lot of the street vendors and most of the Mexicano community, Mexican community, Latino community, immigrant community lives in Eastside San Jose. And I'm, in Eastside San Jose, they also enforce the street color policy, but it seems not so much. Like they're more lenient on it, and that kind of that that kind of made me think of this barrioization. Like they're like, oh, well, we won't police that as much because you're already in your you know your little area of East San Jose. But if you come to downtown where all the tourists and all these bigger businesses are, at, then then we gotta you know watch you there. It, it seems the policing is different. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, <laughs> how to feel about that. It's, it's curious. I'm trying to digest like, that a little bit. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that happens in, like, in many different places. For, yeah. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure that happens all the time in Arizona. Yeah. Well, I would say even, yeah. in, even in Tampa, yeah. right? I mean, I'm sure that happens here, too, in downtown. Yeah, so even, like, where I got this, where I was reading this barrierization before when I started my research, it was actually not even through VIA, but someone else cited him. It was a professor, uh, Ben Chappelle, from the University of Kansas. His, his research was on, like, the policing and, and social control of space of uh, Austin uh, Chicano uh, lowrider club. So, you know, lowriders, cars, like the car club. Mm-hmm. So he, he talked about in that research how how barrierization works, where they, when they're in downtown near like the businesses or where the touristy areas were at, the police are more like hyper aware of, of these, of these, uh, car clubs, but then they wouldn't care so much when they're in another part of the town. So that kind of how I read that about that and I applied that to my research. Yeah. yeah so that, so that looks like that reflects just like general, uh, narratives of, or, or, really critiques of, like, policing in the United States is, like, you know, what what is the role of the police? Like, who are they, you know, supposed to be protecting? And, and then I think, like, like we're, we're really showing in this conversation is that it's really applied differently to different people and, and based on, I mean, a couple of different things, but... Race, class? Yeah. Gender, even, maybe? Yeah, so. Yep, citizenship. Yeah, citizenship, exactly. 
Um, so you've been talking a lot about the theories that you applied in your work. Did you have, you know, what other kind of theories did you explore in your research? Did you have a specific kind of paradigm that you followed, or did you um, kind of pull from several? There are some several, but some of them were very, I guess, Marxist, social control type of influence type of theories. So one of the ones I talk about is controlling processes. So it's a social control theory, kind of like, uh, I guess, very influenced by uh, by the power of different processes and states. That definition is the mechanisms by which ideas take hold and become institutional in relation to power. Also, controlling processes is the transformative nature of central ideas that emanate from institutions operating as dynamic components of power. Um, that's from Dr. Laura Nader of Berkeley. But one of so that was kind of similar, like how these processes work to control the street vendors, these policies. Um, but I also uh, drew from from Gramsci and hegemony. And if people don't know what hegemony is, that's the exercise for the dominant group, class, and power throughout society. Furthermore, hegemony is accomplished through direct domination or command exercised through the state and judicial government. Hegemony is enforced by those in power through spontaneous consent the, by the masses and through the apparatus of state corrosive power, which legally enforces discipline in those groups that do not consent either activity or passively. So hegemony is kind of the, I guess, broader one of that one. But I also dove into some, some different forms of capital from Bordeaux. Um, for example, uh, cultural capital, the informal social skills, taste, habits, knowledge, language, styles, and experiences of certain ethnic or institutional cultures. So with that, I even talked to my project, cultural capital, is the vendors can even use that to their advantage for kind of a resistance to these policies because they decide to treat men through, because they need money, obviously, they need to work, but they decide to sell their own, uh, you know, like their own cultural foods like tacos. So that was kind of a cultural capital. But I, I go into the different capitals, especially uh, economic and social capital as well, as cultural review. And the economic capital is the obvious one for this mm-hmm. uh, research project. The exchange of value or monetary resources, mm-hmm. individual group have at their disposal. And so the uh, tree vendors lack some economic capital that is it's limited because they're not citizens and because they're just trying to, you know, make ends meet, make money, and then they have this disadvantage of having to pay for these street peddler policies that they can't afford, which then leads to legal issues as well. So I dove into those different types of capital. And and probably part of like the um, the the formation or the planning or the development of those like those policies for specifically for the intent of of trying to keep or, or trying to. Um, target people like that right so open doors for some and close them on yeah. others kind of yeah right and um, then since it's an applied project i also dove into some service design um because since it was a project at the end of my project report because I, I didn't do a thesis i did a project report um i talk about i kind of give some recommendations of ways to improve services that might help street vendors or undocumented people in general. And so, so what, were, what are some of your that, recommendations? So some of the recommendations were just reduce the fees or eliminate them altogether. 
that's like an easier solution. But I know, you know, cities trying to make some money. Right. Do you know where the money exactly? This might be hard to check, but you know what the money is used for? Is it just kind of gets exactly where the money goes to? Okay. Something I probably should research more. Yeah. But I know I know they're making money off it because the fees are about at least a thousand or more, depending on the category of vendor. Right. And you figure yeah. there's, there's probably like at least a, at least like a couple hundred. Yeah, and, and then at least for the Super Bowl profits, like because every the NFL made profits from having this clean zone ordinance and controlling the business activity. Right. The city got some money, but really the money all went to the NFL. And that, most of the profits, the biggest profiters of the cities within the Bay Area that was hosting the Super Bowl was San Francisco. So San Jose made some profit, but San Francisco and, NFL, and the NFL made most of it. Hmm. That's curious, because then it's like, what's the benefit of hosting the Super Bowl in your city, right, besides, like, the notoriety, if you're not really actually pulling that much income from it? Yeah, and that's and that's part of, the, like, the criticism I have with ideas of, like, USF, University of South Florida, building um, building a stadium on campus is that, you know, it's, it's more complicated than that. You know, it doesn't benefit everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of money that goes into that. That, mm-hmm. that um, Anyway, it's my critique. It's not relevant to what we're talking about. I digress. Right. I'm sorry. Come back. Right. Yeah, that, that's true, though, because that's kind of like right now with the NFL, you know, the L.A. is about to have a new stadium. And L.A. just passed the actual, uh, they finally legalized street vending. So this whole time, L.A. had street vending illegal, and they just made it legal like a couple weeks ago. But there's all these provisions, there's all these policies, very similar to San Jose's. Um, and by that they, in the those new the little new policy they created, what they're going to do is even if it's, you know it's legal and they can sell now, they're going to have to buy permits, which are going to be expensive. But they're also going to have a, a similar thing like the clean, clean zone, like the uh, special event provision in San Jose, whereas let's say a street vendor wants to go sell at the new football stadium they're building or at Dodger Stadium, they won't be allowed to sell near the stadium because it's going to be like prohibited with this new rule, this new legalization of street vending and the, like their policies so it, it all ties into that in the stadium building like you're saying they say they create jobs and make all this money but studies have shown that the profit just goes to the people that own the stadium the billionaires that you know like the nfl owners yeah no surprise there <laughs> Um, so I think we're going to take another short music break and then we're going to come back with Miguel and uh, wrap up the show for this week. Hey everyone, you listen to the Bulls Radio WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at tunein.com and the TuneIn app. Thanks for staying tuned. Uh, this is the the last third of the second half of Anthro Alert um, for this week. We've been speaking to Miguel Garcia about his research um, in, uh, in California, San Jose, talking about clean zones and other special event policies that um, affected street vendors there, particularly during the Super Bowl, but also um, you know throughout the year. Um, so issues of migration and um, you know the effects of, of big sports corporations um, on, on the city and, and street vendors in particular. Um, so looking back at your project, you're about to, to wrap it up, correct, Miguel? 
Yeah, so I already finished it and re- ra- already wrote it all up. I'm just waiting for graduation. Oh, okay. Congratulations. Yep. Yeah. I I envy that. I'm I'm waiting for graduation myself, but I still have a while ago. So. <laughs> um. So what might have you done? Um. You know, reflecting back, what might have you done differently, or you know, what were some of the lessons learned as you're collecting your research and writing it up? So one of the things I learned, maybe would have done differently. It took me a little longer to get this going. So I started the program. Just it was just a master's program, the applied program. I started in 2013. So you know, usually you try to finish in two years, three years. 2015, 2016. Originally, I wanted to do a, my project more on police violence with the Mexican community. So that's some other interests I've had and wrote papers on. And then also because of my activism with pol- with the issues of police brutality. But uh, So that kind of delayed my project because I didn't end up doing that. There was issues with the IRB with, mm-hmm. the, with the project, mm-hmm. I guess, because of the topic. So that kind of delayed me working on uh, my research so i had to change i had to, you know just change topics and i kind of it's still similar it's still deals with immigration but that's when i ended up deciding to do the street vendor thing and this with the super bowl clean zone ordinance so i think once i guess one major thing was just kind of having more down like exactly what i was going to do for my research project was one thing because it took a I've finally going to graduate in 2018, and work, I've been working on this project for like two years. As you can see, the Super Bowl was in 2016, and then Trump campaign and the presidency was just a year ago. So, But I guess one thing that came about from taking so long was I guess the silver lining was I got to talk about these immigration issues more in depth besides just the clean zone ordinance. So I guess that was one silver lining of me taking longer with my project. Um, yeah, and uh, Miguel, did you get a chance to maybe present um, at any conferences? Yeah, so actually in 2015, I presented on on at the AAAs in Denver, and it was about my original research about police violence in Silicon Valley. But now for this project, I'm, I'm, I got accepted for a panel so. I'll be presenting in November at the Triple A, which is actually going to be in San Jose. So that's pretty cool. I'll be representing my department and talking about some research that happened in San Jose at a conference in San Jose. So I'll be talking about this, my research project in a, I guess, a smaller paper for the Triple A's. Yeah, I've done some conferences. I, I, I would suggest for students out there, once you have some research, try to hit up some conferences. Um, do some abstracts. You might not think it's going to get picked, but uh, but people might like your research. Just go go out there and talk about it. You get the, it's I don't know. It's kind of fun. Sometimes it's kind of a drag, but I like doing conferences. Yeah, I like going to the business meetings. Oh yeah, learning about all the stuff they do yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah, that well, that's where all the free foods at that I found. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hey, so like, I mean, do you have any other recommendations for people who are maybe interested in pursuing a degree in anth- in applied anthropology or anthropology? Like, what what do you think they should consider before like setting out for like a bachelor's degree or a master's degree? I would suggest you're going to have to go to grad school. That's what all my professors told me. You don't have to get a 
I want to get my PhD, but it doesn't it doesn't have to go that far. You could just get a master's. I know a lot of applied anthropologists. That's usually what they only they get a master's. But I would just suggest if you like anthropology, do what you want to do. Do what you want to what you love. Like what research you like to do. If it's anthropology, do it. But I know people are kind of afraid of the future. Like not anthropology as a I guess as a discipline, but more in academia with you know being a professor. There's all the budget cuts in universities where there's, you know, they're not hiring as many anthropologists or professors for jobs. And usually if they do, it's uh, for, you know, you're going to be an adjunct. So I know some people kind of have that fear or maybe they think it's going to be easy to be a professor. Um, I don't know. But I'd, I would say just follow your follow your dreams. If you want to be an anthropologist, you want to be an anthropologist. But you really research what you want to do because I wasn't an anthropology major before. I actually started off as a business major, the marketing major when I was younger. I'm 32 now, but when I started my college years, started community college and started my undergrad, I was a marketing major. Um, I wasn't even that, but I took a class, actually. I was kind of getting tired of being a business major. I was kind of getting more uh, influenced by things that aren't influenced by capitalism, was reading about different things like Marx and stuff like that, so I was starting to get influenced by that. But I took this class, a business class on ethics, and that kind of made me change my mind, like, huh, I don't know if I want to be a business major, but this class kind of, like, made me think of issues, different types of issues. Like, I wrote a paper about the VP spill, and then by then I was like, I don't want to be a business major. I want to do something like social science type of stuff. So from there, that, that class was actually what influenced me to be an anthropologist. But then I decided I'm going to switch majors, and I was choosing between actually sociology and anthropology. And I had a meeting with the anthropology chair at my undergraduate at my school with Cal State San Bernardino. And he convinced me. He was telling me about anthropology and all the different, you know, I used to think it was just archaeology, you know, the Indiana Jones like stereotype. Yeah, that's we, I all, we all thought that. I didn't know what anthropology was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, like you go, go ahead. Yeah, so so I had a like I had a similar uh, a similar experience where you know I didn't start out in anthropology, but I I took a class and I liked it, and I ended up there eventually. Um, and that's that's it's a theme. Like we hear that frequently. We're like no like like nobody in high school knows about anthropology. Right when you're like trying to pick careers and thinking of us, you're like, oh, engineering, legal, law, medical, business. You know, those are all like psychologists. Like those are all things that are more or less abstract. Like people have a more of an idea of what those things are, and then like, oh, what's an anthropologist, sociologist? Like, what's an English major? You know, like those things are they don't make sense to like high school kids because they're not explained. But right. know, when in re- when in reality, there's like a lot of value to social science. Stuff. Well, there's like no exposure to anthropology in high school. Like there's a uh, AP psychology or like AP history. There's no like AP anthropology yeah. or just the anthropology class in general. Right? Like it's, it's, it's all like, STEM city, man. Yeah, exactly. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but. Um, yeah, I mean, but this might be just biology class, like or, like bioanthro type of things. But yeah. even then, they don't have anthropology. You're just, oh, you're taking biology, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, talking about, I guess, moving forward, the future, future directions. What's um, what's next for you, Miguel? So the reason I did actually 
joined, you know, wanted to go to San Jose State because it is an applied anthro program. My whole goal was, hey, I want to be a once I realized I want to be anthropologist in undergrad. I was like, I'm going to be a professor, but I was learning about applied anthropology and working, you know, outside academia. So I was like, well, I'll go to an applied anthro program just in case I decide not to go the academic route or something happens. Um, so I would even suggest that to people too. Hey, maybe you want to be a professor, but you want to keep your options open. So I think applied anthro is a good way to go. And then I know at South Florida, you guys have a PhD program. And applied anthro, so you could people could still get their PhD. They don't have to stop at a master's for applied. Yep. But I would like right recently, when, like when you said in the intro, like I just recently accepted a job with the state of California and the uh, Bureau for Private Post Secondary Education, and I'm not going to be entitled an anthropologist, but I'm going to be doing some anthropologist, some cultural anthropology type of stuff. Mm. And I think that's typically how it is, right? Like, you, you don't typically have the title of anthropologist, but, I mean, we're using our skills nonetheless. Like, Because it's very rare to have that title, and so you got to, right. like, make yourself fit into something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I would suggest people, hey, there's other careers you could do outside of, anthrop- outside of academia. Like, I still want to be a professor, but maybe, I don't know, maybe I get my PhD, but I like working outside of the you know, practicing anthropologists. So there's different ways. Like, I got a job with the government. So there's people, you could be an anthropologist and get a job in the government. Mm-hmm. You get a job uh, working with uh, nonprofits. In Silicon Valley in San Jose, like, our department is very big on um, anthropology and, like, tech. Yeah. We're in Silicon Valley. So mm-hmm. anthropologists are branching out into working for Google and all these other companies doing more, like, applied like user type of research ux yeah user experience so that's another, yeah that's another direction so there's that don't listen to those forbes articles saying oh anthropology or social science degrees or or art degrees are worthless you've seen those before probably yeah, yeah. top 10 don't pick this major like right it's a lie man get a job outside of academia so yeah, my, yeah my, <laughs> my uncle sends me one of those articles every day <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes he just sends the same one. Just to remind you? That, that, yeah, he's a real nice, nice person. Oh, man. All right. Um, I think that's about all the time that we have for this week. Um, so we want to thank Miguel for uh, taking the time to come on and, and chat with us about your research. So thank you for that. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Great show. Listening to the show earlier when you guys talking about uh, – Diplomacy, that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, and so if you'd like to read a summary of our discussions this week, you can visit us, um, visit our website, anthroalert.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, so you can leave us a comment there if you'd like. Um, if not, thank you for listening, and we will be back next week. See you soon.